0: When you think of the Garden of Eden, what do you think about Beautiful place. Beautiful place. You know, I've been in, in some uh, gardens and I've thought, wow, I wonder if it was something like this. And, and probably the truth is it was even better than whatever that is. Um, uh, we got visions of perfection when we think of that, don't we? We imagine uh, perfect weather. We think of friendly animals, you know, uh, um, I, I, I saw a cartoon this week that that uh, Adam Neve learned pretty quick not to pet a skunk, you know. Um, <laughs> probably don't want to pet a skunk. Um, or, or, or stay a little ways away from a beehive. You know, they probably learned that pretty quick. But otherwise, the animals were pretty friendly, I, I figure, in the garden. Uh, we envision uh, clean water, clean air. You know, it's before... Pollution and all those things begin to happen as a result of sin. A lot of space, no crowds, didn't ever need a parking space, you know, find a parking space. Um, Direct access to God. Could it be any better than that? Didn't have to worry about what to wear. No, and we're going to talk about that. You just didn't have to worry about what to wear, you know. There was no Dillard's. You know, no Nordstrom, and they were always on time. You're right. So, So the idea was whatever perfection and a perfect life, whatever that envisions, whatever you envision of that in your mind is kind of what was going on, and yet by chapter three in the Bible, the man and the woman that God placed there lost Eden. Um, it, it's interesting to me uh, that it only takes three chapters for all this to, to take place. Um, it's a drama that shakes the foundations of God's created order, which we've been talking about for the last four or five weeks. It changes the whole trajectory of human relationships, of history. We still cope with the, uh, the fallout from what happens in chapter 3. We'll talk about some of that today. Now, Genesis 3 begins with a different kind of presentation of the Bible. The first couple of chapters of the Bible are pretty much narrative, they're telling us what happened in story form or in narrative form. By the time we get to chapter 3, we have a drama. It's a story told through the dialogue of the characters. So we hear more. Uh, we hear God talking a little more. We hear Adam speaking. We hear uh, Eve speaking. In fact, if you begin with the first part of chapter 3, you even hear a snake talk. Can you imagine anything worse than a talking snake? Huh? Two talking snakes. Okay, yeah, that, that would do it. Ellie, you're so smart. You're so much smarter than me. You're always one step ahead of me. Uh, can you imagine anything worse than a talking snake? Well, we encountered a talking snake in chapter 3, and um, uh, it's interesting what was, what was going on there with that snake, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, um, so Eve ends up giving into to a temptation here an enticement. Uh, Adam follows suit. He becomes a pretty willing accomplice. Doing this, by the way, it's interesting to me that the original temptation to sin is the same one that you and I hear every every day. If you'll do this, you'll be just like God. You'll be the master of your own fate. That's still Satan's enticement to us. Uh, So uh, they're overcome with shame, and they attempt to cover their uh, nakedness with. uh, makeshift garments. They uh, attempt to hide in this garden that God had created for them. So when we pick up the story in verse 8, they have uh, kind of woken up to this uh, sin that they've, sin problem that they've created, and they're trying to hide in God's garden. Steve, can I get you to read uh, 8 down to verse 13? It is funny. <laughs> okay. It is always somebody else's fault. We're going to get into that in a minute. Um, now, let it <laughs> It's just. Isn't it funny that the biblical narrative is just kind of, it's like, it's so ludicrous. And we're going to talk about why that is in just a minute. Uh, Would somebody find Psalm 139? John, do you mind to go to Psalm 139? I'll have you read 7 down through 12 in a little bit in Psalm 139. I need somebody else to go to Psalm 32, verse 3. Thank you, Jan. Uh, By the way, I saw your card and I, I neglected to read it. Evidently, Patrick's outcome was good. Still cancer free, and we're good. And you're going to have some surgery coming up, Jan. Is that right? What's that date? Twenty-two. Okay, okay. Um, and then I need somebody else to get First John one and read verse eight and nine. Who'll do that one? Thank you, Cindy. Okay, now that'll get us a little ways down down the road. Oh, I need one more because this one will be a little harder to find. Ezekiel eighteen four. Who will get that one? Oh, Sally, the school teacher says I can find Zeke. Okay, that's good. All right, now. I just put the question here because I was dealing with how perfect this place was. What do you think Eden looked like? Just think about that for just a minute. It was a perfect place. It, was a, it had within it the perfect couple. Um, none of the ravages of sin over humanity yet. And in context, as Steve was reading verse 8, God is walking through your garden in the cool of the day. you got to catch how completely perfect this situation was, the setup was. uh, Overarching all of what we're going to talk about today, what I've got to have this deal with a little bit is when God says no, there's a reason. When God says no, there's a reason. Literally, don't mess all this up. I think when you read this, there are some times when we cynically think, God just said no to set this whole thing up. He loaded, you know, he kind of loaded the game. He rigged the game. I I just don't want to go there. He wanted it to remain perfect. And I think about all the things that could have happened had it remained perfect. And so, here's God. He, he interacts with them face-to-face every day in the cool of the day. They know that, and when they, so at the time when they know God's going to be passing by, they look at each other and they say, we better hide. And they use foliage to hide. Do what? Uh, you know, there's some of that thought. Which, by the way, that didn't work, evidently, Katie. Uh, look at 225. I think it's important because I want you to think about this. What is different between 225 and 3.8 or so? What, what, what was the state in 225? They were naked there. They were naked in 3. But they felt no shame prior to eating food. There you go. They, they, they were naked but felt no shame. Uh, you know the name Louis Grizzard? I think he's dead now. He wrote for the Atlanta paper. He was a a syndicated columnist for the Atlanta paper, and he also did uh, some kind of stand-up comedy kind of stuff or lecture series kind of thing. He said there's a difference between being naked and being naked. (laughs) In chapter 2, they were naked. In chapter 3, they were naked. I think he said his definition was when you're naked, you're naked, but you're up to something. So uh, it's kind of so they hide. And my question is, can you really hide Absolutely not. from God? John, read to us about about man's futile attempt throughout history to hide from God. Beginning right here. Uh, Psalm 139 verse seven. say surely the darkness will hide me and the light will come nigh around me even as darkness and the night you can you hide from god no now adam is going to teach us this as he tries in the foliage of god's garden to hide from god And God asks a really, what I believe is an incredibly hollow question in verse 9. Where are you? Does does God need information here? (laughs) Adam, where where are you? Uh, It's going to be interesting because as we get through verse 10 and verse 11 and in through there, we're going to see kind of, we're going to see God asking for information, but he doesn't really need information. The Lord arrives where they always meet, and Adam and Eve are not there. Where are you? Do you hear how hollow that question is? If if I understand, and I've... Um, Done a little bit of memory work in Psalm 139 and use it a lot. It bathes over my soul a lot as I read Psalm 139 when David is talking about um, this fruitless pursuit of trying to hide from God. What I want you to know is that there's a difference between uh, the kind of faith that we teach here at crossings and uh, other faiths in the world, if you if you read uh, anything about comparative religions or you read about other religions in the world, what you're going to realize is that most of them have something to do with man, with a, a person pursuing God. Do you realize that Christianity turns that completely around? God's searching for us. And it starts right here with man's first sin that messed everything up. From right then, God is saying, where are you? I'm looking for you. I I hope you catch the beauty and the tragedy at the same time of that thought. As throughout the rest of human history, God searches for man and he is always pursuing us. Now, Adam answers in verse 10. He said, I was afraid, so I hid. Uh, Because of my nakedness, he says, and I want us to see kind of what's, new about this. Look at look back at, at the the former chapter that we studied last week. Then God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Verse 15 to cultivate and keep it. And the Lord commanded man saying from any tree of the garden you may eat freely but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So the thought here is what is new is evidently that nakedness is not new. So if he's using the excuse Hey, wait a minute, I was, I was naked, uh, so I had to hide from you. Uh, that's no excuse, right? Why? Because it's not new. That's not a new thing. Um, he has been naked from the beginning. He recognizes his nakedness, maybe that's part of it. But he was afraid because of his disobedience. I read this comment this week, and please stick with me here. Don't, don't check out on me for saying something this dramatic, but I think it's true. Sin makes me stupid. It just does. Now, think about that in your own life. Cliff, it probably doesn't make you stupid, but it does me. Okay? It just makes me dumb. I I get to thinking about the incredible freedom that these two individuals had with everything perfect. They had one rule. There were no Ten Commandments even. Didn't need them. Just one. And so Adam here, in his shame, breaks that one rule. And in his shame, he says, no, I'm hiding from you because I'm naked. Again, God asks a question for which he doesn't need any information. Look at verse 11. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? And here's, here's, I want you to catch what's happening in the middle part of verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 11. He's giving him a chance here. You were naked yesterday. What changed? Okay, I'm supposing God says, could it be because you ate from that tree I told you not to eat from? Now catch this. And for the first time ever in thinking about this story, this is not a story I think about a whole lot, so... For the first time this week in thinking about this story and some of the study I've done, I began to think about what God is doing here, I think, is he's giving Adam a chance to confess. I hid because I was naked. Well, Time out, pal. You were naked yesterday. Could it be? Isn't it interesting? God didn't need information here, verse 11. Could it be it's because you ate of the tree? I told you not to eat it. Could it be? I wonder how the storyline would have changed if Adam would have said, uh, You got me there. I, you know, that's the Sorry. But he didn't do that. Given that he he didn't do that. And I, I wonder in verse 11 that God is trying to elicit a confession. And Adam doesn't go with it. Um, he's given him a chance here, I think, to confess. But when given the chance to confess, verse 12, he does what we often do. He tries to, when he realizes he can't hide from his sin, God knows about his sin, he tries to deflect guilt. Now, notice that Adam never says, I did it. Let's let's think about this for a minute. Did somebody get Psalm 32, verse 3 to hand that one to somebody? Jan, please read that, would you? Go ahead and read verse th- four. For day and night the hand was heavy on me. My strength was set as in the heat of summer. Verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin. There you go. And I did not cover up my equity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me my sin. The Bible tells us that this is David's confession after the Bathsheba sin. And he says. Before, I was miserable. I was naked and hiding. But when I acknowledged my sin, you gave me relief. Uh, listen to how John expresses it in First John 1, verse 8 and 9. Who's got that? Thank you, Cindy. So there are two things I can do. One of the things I can do is say, you know, I'm pretty much perfect. Or I can say, sin I will, sin I must. If I don't sin, I'll surely bust. I mean, you know, we can say, (laughs) I didn't write that, by the way. Or we can come clean with it. Or, man, today was not a good day. And we can come clean with it. Because he can deal with it when I come clean with it. Adam didn't do that here. He tries to deflect. Uh, Notice that Adam never says, I did it. One of the things I'm not liking about the difference between basketball when I was a kid and basketball now, especially in the NBA. I remember, okay, my favorite uh, player when I was a kid growing up was John Havlicek. Anybody remember him? When John Havlicek got called for a foul, he raised his hand. What do they do now? They either flop or say, hey, wait a minute. I was robbed. Come on. Nobody raises their hand anymore. I did it. Okay, you caught me. I did it. Adam never says, I did it. Instead, he blames his flesh and bone. Remember the week last week? He's, God brings her to him and he says, this is um, bone of my bone and flesh of in my flesh. Here, in, by chapter three, he's saying, hey, it was her. <laughs> and notice here, catch this, because I have missed this. He not only blames her, but he blames God. Did you catch that? The one you gave me. How awful is that, guys? I've goofed up and I blame somebody around me and I eventually blame, well, God did this to me. You gave her to me. Okay, so Eve does a lot better, right? Uh-uh. Verse three uh, verse 13, look at verse 13. What does she do? She follows suit with her husband and she tries to shift blame. Who does she blame? Serpent. The snake, that talking snake dirty, rotten, talking, lying, snake. But again, there's no repentance. There's no asking for forgiveness. And what I want you to know here, as long as I am shifting blame, there is no forgiveness. I had a young man ask me less than a month ago. He was was reading, um, reading the Gospels, and he came across this idea of the unpardonable sin, and it was bugging him, and he wanted to ask me, what's the unpardonable sin? Can I tell you, I'm not real sure about all that. I, I could talk to you for 45 minutes about it, but I'm still not very sure about it. What I want to say to this is, I know what, what what an unpardonable sin is. It's a sin for which I do not confess. He can forgive it if you'll get it out of the way, if you'll uncover it as David said, Jan read. Uh, It's interesting to me. The unconfessed sin. And we read here the first two people to walk in a perfect place. Both of them sinned and both of them failed to confess. There's no indication here ever that they said, Lord, I'm so sorry. None. Okay, we got to move on in the story. Um, John, can I get you to come back and read verse 14, 14 through 17? Yes. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and at ate of the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the well ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Wow. Okay. Sally, read what Ezekiel says. Now, there evidently is a rule kind of generally assumed. That the children have eaten sour grapes, uh, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And Ezekiel turns this on its head. For every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The soul who sins. I can't say she made me do it, I can't say the snake made me do it. The soul who sins is the one who's got to deal with the sin. Okay, so God turns to our friend the serpent, okay? By the way, I'm loving what God says to the serpent right here, beginning in verse 14. The snake doesn't get a chance to confess. The snake doesn't get any chance to confess. God doesn't say... "Um, have you thought about your actions here? He doesn't really do that. I th- I'm, I'm really good with this. I'm really good with the fact that he just gets curses from God. Uh, God doesn't question the serpent. He only punishes him. Um, uh, and it's interesting here, what is said in three one. now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God made, and uh, and thus the, the temptation that comes. It's interesting to me. I put a couple of references for you, you know, if you'll trust me just to kind of tell you what they are. In Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, uh, they, uh, John identifies, uh, the, the revelation of John from God, identifies that Satan is the serpent of old, okay? Your enemy, the serpent of old. He uses that phrase twice in the book of Revelation, the serpent of old. And it talks about him being defeated here. So the idea here is, okay, what you need to imagine is the snake was something like the Geico Gecko. Your head? I'm not sure he had an Australian accent, but he was walked. Okay, you know who I'm talking about. Now God says. Here's, here's some some thoughts I had here. Now you're gonna be a slithering, dust-eating belly dragger. <laughs> Okay, however this serpent was, he's not going to be anymore. God doesn't give him any chances here. He just says, you're done. Okay, now, verse 15 could not be more important. It may be the most important verse in, the old, in, in Genesis. Somebody read it out loud again. John, would you read 15 out loud again? This is the gospel. The first record of the gospel comes here in 315. Uh, Mankind begins to sin in the early verses of chapter 3 and by 315, God is already hinting at the gospel. There there is a technical term for this. I would write it on the board, but I probably wouldn't spell it right. It's called the proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium. The first gospel. Okay? Okay. Now, there are three things that are said here that I want to be sure you catch. I put some references here that you can run, okay? There is a promise of enmity, E-N-M-I-T-Y. What is enmity? Get along. Not getting along. That's good. There's a promise of discord, of strife. Between whom? The woman and the snake. Between the woman and the snake. Okay, we're, and literally, we're going to talk about that. The, the The phrase here that you need to catch, because this is part of the the great uh, prediction, the great prophecy here, is the seed of the woman. There's going to be trouble from now on between you, Mr. Serpent, and the seed of the woman. Enmity is the first promise. The second promise, as you read verse 15, is there will be a blow to the serpent. Okay, to catch that? He's going to step on you. going to step on your head. And so the idea here is there will be a blow to the serpent. And the third one is there will also be a blow to the seed of the woman, a blow to the offspring. But, in other words, you're going to bite his heel. He's going to step on your head. You're going to bite his heel. But the thought here is it is not a mortal wound. Or the thought is that he he won't be defeated. Maybe dead, remember, but not defeated. Isn't that a wonderful thought here? That right here in in Genesis 3.15, God is already predicting how this is all going to unravel. God is already predicting that there will be an end to this. There will be a fix for this. And it's coming in the one that the Bible would then, through the rest of the Old Testament, kind of refer to a little bit as the seed of the woman. Now, we're not talking about Seth or Cain or Abel. We're going to talk about them next week in chapter 4. We're talking about the one who becomes. And he's going to say, the seed is in the ground. And comes back. That's wonderful. This this new or the first record of the gospel. Verse 16 is the one women don't like. The best I can say here is that uh, we're talking about two pronouncements that he makes. To women and to the woman. So both to women in general and to that woman. Um, It's the curse that's talked about here that talks about. A, um, uh, kind of how childbearing will be, okay? Uh, uh, there's some thought here that childbearing would not have been painful before this happens in 316. Um, so the curse makes the woman's new normal more dire here. And he, he has this interesting statement about uh, a woman being ruled over—that's an interesting word. Um, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, the, the word there is the same word that is used in one eighteen for governed. Now, I don't know—I'm sh- not sure exactly what's being talked about there. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, and probably never completely unravel it. What I do know this is that, however, their partnership, man and woman, was in the garden in chapter two, is no more. It's not the same. There is now a hierarchy that was not there before. Um, it just seems like to me. And that is indicated in the New Testament in places like 1 Corinthians eleven three and Ephesians 5, 2 and other places. So there's a curse here, a physical curse. And then there's this it's kind of an enmity between man and woman. It's not as easy as it was to do that relationship if now. Jesus kind of putting that aside. Oh, I think Jesus has a lot to say about that. But I'm just saying here, whatever was that idyllic man and woman relationship of the garden is no more. It's different now. Okay? We can unpack that more, but just, will you go with me here? It's just different. It's not as good. Now, look at what he says to man, to Adam, in verse 17. His pronouncement to him is longer and stronger. So, girls, if you think you got it too bad, I get that. But he spends more time in his pronouncement of, of a curse here to Adam. It's longer and it's stronger than to, to, than to the woman. Talks about the curse of the ground. Uh, words like toil, work, tedium. I am convinced that Monday was invented right here. There weren't Mondays before 3:17. 318, somewhere in there, okay? I I just wonder, okay? Um, By the way, I put a reference to Revelation 22, verse 3, because the idea here is that man will work, he he will make a living by the toil of his hands until the last chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation 22, verse 3, the idea that the curse is done away with. So, girls, if you don't like your curse in verse 16, boys, if you don't like your curse in verse 17, one of these days it's coming to an end. Not there yet. Not th- 22 verse, verse three. It comes to an end when the garden returns and time is no more. Now, I just want to say this, and and um, I, w- I want to slip quickly through. Uh, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And then he banishes him, beginning in verse 22, from the garden. So as a result of their sin, the couple is banished from their idyllic home. But death begins to enter the picture right here. God says, we're going to have to Send them out of here because what if they eat of the tree of life? Then they'll live forever in this state. We don't want that. So death begins to enter the picture. No more Eden. And the first death recorded in the Bible occurs in verse 21. Look at it. It's implied. What does God do for them in verse 21? The fig leaves didn't work, Katie. That's right. He clothed them with animal skin, but don't miss what happened. In order to clothe them with animal skin, he had, to, he had to sacrifice one one or two or whatever it took. We don't know what it was. Could it have been a lamb? Could it have been a gut? You know, who knows? But the idea was they're covered from then on. Their nakedness is covered with an animal skin. And a death occurs for the first time here in 3, 321. One death covered their sin, and one death still does. There is one source for all of that. God provides for it. You're only going to read about it in the Bible. By the way, if you study activity in Washington, if you study activity in world politics, if you look at any other any other uh, system of ethics, there is still only one place where you're going to get this word. There's only one dispensary of it, and it's the church. And there's only one inventor of it, and it's God. And he starts it right here in 321. It's spelled G-R-A-C-E. God gives them grace. It covers their sin. And it requires a blood sacrifice. So did yours. And mine. He covered my sin by his grace.